0: In Episode 8 of Mobycast, John and Chris discussed the core AWS services they use regularly. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in.
1: Today, we're just going to talk about some of the services that we use and love. We've already talked about one of them in depth in Episode 3, and that was Amazon's Elastic Container Service. Um, and we'll, we'll just redefine it here today and, and, you know, give some quick highlights about what it, what it is and why it's good. But, you know, definitely go back and listen to episode three if you're more interested in the details of ECS. Um, what is that
2: though, Chris? And why do we use it? Why do we love it? Yeah. So, um, ECS is definitely one of the foundational AWS services that we use since we, we are fans of containerization, and we use we we Dockerize all of our apps. So ECS stands for Elastic Container Service, and what it is, it's basically it's a um, container orchestration service for scheduling, running, monitoring your containerized applications across a cluster of nodes in inside your Amazon inside your Amazon cloud. So really like this is the go-to service that we're using on, on a daily basis, right? Whenever we're, we're doing a deploy of our, of our code, we're using ECS. Whenever we're um, launching a new application, we're, we're using ECS. When we want to see what's going on um, when we have to troubleshoot. Uh, we're looking at ECS as well. So it's, it's definitely, it, it, is in, it is in the wheelhouse for us, given that we are big fans of containerization. And and just
1: to kind of counter that to what we could be using, we're using ECS as opposed to, say, just spinning up individual machines on EC2 and installing our software there and managing it there or installing our, our containers onto those individual machines and using some other orchestrator like Kubernetes. Um, and we're using ECS in place of doing a platform as a service like Heroku or doing a platform as a service like Elastic Beanstalk. And in fact, we... Do not like elastic beanstalk. Let's talk about elastic beanstalk a little bit and what it, what it is and why we've moved away from from it. There's a few applications that we used to have on elastic beanstalk and we've we've pulled them out of there. What are some things that we don't like about it? or what
2: is it first, Chris, and then what are some things we don't like about it? Right. So so yeah, elastic beanstalk is kind of like the in a way it's it's a precursor to to ECS in that. But it's it's at a higher level of, of abstraction. So it, it really does kind of fall into the to the PAS category, so the platform as a service. And and you can kind of think of it as that where ECS is dealing with um units at the container level, um uh things like beanstalk are dealing with things at the VM level. So it's a much um larger uh unit of granularity. And so uh it definitely, you know when Beanstalk came out. You know, it's it, Beanstalk's been around. It's a pretty established technology. It's been around now for probably at least six, seven years. Um, it's it's been around for for quite some time, um, and you know, it definitely at the time it was it was definitely a wonderful tool, right? It allowed you to really easily spin up the resources that you need in order to run your application. Um, And, and it served, it served a really valuable purpose. And Chris, I think that one of the, one of the things that
1: at the time, um, Elastic Beanstalk offered that its competitors didn't was the ability to get in and touch the machines that your platform as a service was running on. So, uh, you know, the big, the, the obvious competitor to Elastic Beanstalk. Is Heroku. So people that have used Heroku know what know what that is. That you know that you send your code to Heroku and Heroku just spins it up and now it's running and you can access it in a browser. Um but you can't, you know, if you want to look at logs or if you want to do anything, uh, you have to do these specialized Heroku ca- commands to get access to anything. Or and you also have to connect additional Heroku services to see anything. So Elastic Beanstalk was was sort of a step in the right direction from that, where it was like, well it's really hard to troubleshoot and monitor on Heroku. Can we just get a little more, can we see these machines? And and with Elastic Beanstalk, all of a sudden you could, you can turn them on and turn them off, see them, um, SSH into them. It, you just got a lot more control and it was, it was sort of a
2: wonderful step forward. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's actually kind of interesting because I, this is actually probably another kind of full discussion we can have about just like Amazon's approach to um, building products and services as opposed mm-hmm. to everyone else. And like, for me, like a, a really great distinction is like it's Apple versus, you know, Amazon. Apple is the, the full up, polished, make it as simple as possible, give you one knob, right? That's all you get to turn. And Amazon is like, you know what? There's no common UI or UX. Every team, they get to design whatever it is they want. They're going to, and they're not going to do, you know, like the best job in the world at it, but they're going to give you just the raw capabilities, right? So it's kind of like the raw, t- it's more of like just, Here's the raw tools. Do with it whatever you want, and we're going to give you like nineteen thousand knobs. Versus Heroku was was absolutely more of like here is like a finished, um, a finished product slash service with just a few knobs. And for some people that was probably a great benefit, and for other people like like what you point out, like it's frustrating because you you actually want to get under the covers and and do do other certain things. Right. And another analogy that I like here is this. This
1: is maybe a funny analogy, but have you ever heard of recombinant cuisine? It's like a Midwestern invention. No. <laughs> That's when you have things like hot dishes that inside the hot dish, the ingredients are not uh, whole food ingredients, but but rather, you know, created food ingredients. So you might have um, a hot dish that has tater tots in it, or it might have ketchup in it, or it might have, you know, cream of mushroom soup or just various things that are already their own food put together to create a new food based on other created foods so so the, the analogy then goes you know elastic beanstalk is a recombinant cuisine of ec2 and all these other amazon services um so that when when it's all s- stirred together in this final hot dish um, you still get access to the underlying services, so you can still see the EC2 instances, or you can still see the security groups and everything else that's kind of built up
2: to create this this sort of um, meal for you. <laughs> so I will forever now associate Beanstalk with tater, <laughs> with tater tots. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and then maybe the other thing to add with 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 Beanstalk is it, again. Um, You know, it's dealing at it's basically virtualizing at the VM layer, um, and not at the containers. We've had um, long discussions about VMs versus containers, and so it's really that was our first episode. Now we can get a little self-referential. So in episode (laughs) one, we talked about that, right? So go back, listen to that one, um, because that's really like the um, uh, the analogy here is you know, ECS is. For containers and Beanstalk is for VMs, and so I, I will say, um, you know, us internally, we we had been building all of our apps using Beanstalk um, when I when I first came on board, and because we we weren't yet using containers, and um, again, work well, but it's also pretty um, pretty wasteful because if you want to have like two instances of your of your app running for redundancy. That means that you're spinning up two separate EC2s that are dedicated solely to that app. You can't really run anything else on those EC2s, and so we had you know many additional EC2s, which um, meant we had issues to deal with. Like, okay, what happens when we have um, security patches that are out that we need to to get installed, and what happens when we're um, look at our monthly um, monthly bill that we're paying for, and just seg- other security issues, security groups, making sure that everything is locked down, and um, just much more difficult, much more complicated, much more expensive to to operate and maintain um, and to monitor. So moving from that that VM as the unit of deployment to containers um, was just a huge, huge improvement for us. And so that's definitely um, kind of Beanstalk is just really no longer part of our tool set. Um, we've switched over completely to ECS. Yeah, I think there's two other things about Beanstalk
1: that... That really drove us away from it and towards ECS. And one of them is you mentioned security a little bit. Security is always a rabbit hole, but I believe that Beanstalk has a tendency to create this proliferation of security groups. If you, especially if you use the console for creating your Beanstalk um, applications, um, it automatically creates security groups to, for the instances to talk to each other and, and to talk to the, da- the database. And the next thing you know, you have all these rather anonymous looking security groups in your AWS. Um, console and nobody knows what they're for. And if you have several applications running, then you just end up with legacy security groups. And, 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 and all the security groups are all called like launch wizard or something like <laughs> yes, that. Right? Yes. So. Yes. Um so that's that's a real drag when it comes to Elastic being stocked. And I should say, you know, we're uh, AWS partners at, at Kelsys and um I don't know if we're allowed to talk negatively about AWS services. We might see, we might get a cease and desist from <laughs> saying these bad things about Elastic Beanstalk. Um, but then the other thing about uh, Elastic Beanstalk that's been a drag is there's a little secret that, that happens that if you, again, if you use the console, which why wouldn't you use the console to create a new application? Like why, why would you do it a hard way when there's this easy way that they make available for you? Um, and you use the console and you, let the console create a database instance for you, you end up in a world of hurt. What is that world of hurt again?
2: Yeah, well, oh, so, uh, yeah. So if you, you can, Beanstalk makes it very, very simple for you to, um, as you're spinning up your application to say, yeah, I have a database associated with my application. Go ahead and create that for me as well. Um, So super easy to do. Um, Boom, you're up and running. Um, Everything's working perfectly. Um, Then down the line, you say, oh, I'm going to create a, I don't need that. I I need. I'm going to migrate my application. I'm going to build a a a new version of this application. Maybe we're going to port it, right? We or maybe we're doing some refactoring. Um, so we want to break it up into two microservices instead of one monolith. So we have a couple. We're breaking it up into you know a Python app, uh, uh, the Django Python app into two Node Node services. So we want to. We're going to delete that Beanstalk application and. And bring up these two new ones. But we we want to keep the database, right? We're not gonna we don't need to change that. That's all of our data is there and, and whatnot. Well, if you had Beanstalk create your database for you, when you go and delete that Beanstalk application, what else is it gonna delete your database? Um, <laughs> right? So not a, not a good thing to do. So that's definitely you know big, big lesson learned, big, big gotcha is don't let beanstalk build your database for you instead you need to create that separately do it yourself in RDS um, and then just update your application to say like here is my my connection string here here, I'm going to go talk to this RDS instance so keep don't let don't let Beanstalk touch your database so
1: so throughout all of this it seems like the you know not only is not only is it that we want to use ECS because it's because it lets us use containerization but you know Beanstalk with all of its great things that it that it did, in in order to enable us to see what's going on inside of our platform as a service, it came with some opinionated UX type stuff and an opinionated, opinionated architecture and opinionated design that that ended up biting us. Um, and even if it wasn't for the fact that containerization offers this uh, great way forward, we'd probably still uh, be a little unhappy with with Beanstalk.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll, will say one other, um, kind of thing that does come to mind with Beanstalk is kind of a chalk up another one in the, in the con <laughs> column, if you will. Um, so we, you, you guys remember Spectre meltdown? Um, yes. The, the big hubbub with that a few months back. Um, and where we, um, you know, all of our OS's had to be patched, um, in order to, to deal with that and, and, and plug up those security holes, plug those security holes. So Amazon, um, you know, they they almost immediately had patches for the um, Amazon Linux AMI, um, and so on our ECS cluster, where we had most of our most of our software running, it was literally all we had to do was just go change the launch configuration inside ECS to say, hey, here's the new AMI I want you to use, um, and then we just cycled through our our cluster EC2s and terminated them and let the um, autoscale group bring up new ones with the new AMI. So literally took minutes of, of time to, to go through and, and patch all these instances. Um, we have one legacy Beanstalk application and that particular one um, it's, it, it was much more difficult. Um, and actually there was a lot more latency associated with how soon we could get that patched um, because with Beanstalk, it's not the straight Amazon Linux AMI that it's using. It's actually the the Beanstalk version of it. Um, so they didn't have a patch for that right out of the gate. And not only that, like really, like there's two ways of getting patches. You you could do it manually. So you could log in the machine and and figure it out. And, 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 or you could do it, you could do it manually through it through a lot more effort or like the preferred way is to, um, let the managed updates feature of Beanstalk handle this. So they have you can define a maintenance window of when you want to receive updates and whatnot. But I get the, the the point here is that I think our Beanstalk application it took a, like a full week before it got patched for the meltdown Spectre vulnerabilities, versus our ECS machines were patched um, darn near darn near immediately. That is awesome. That that was a super cool thing
1: that ECS made possible. So. Um... So I know, Rich, that you're, you know, in your business, um, neither of these are coming up for you that often. But I am curious, uh, as we talk about AWS services that we use that are indispensable, um, are you uh, in, in your business using any AWS services?
0: Or, and if so, what are you using? So we um, are using AWS, but, but not directly, right? So the services that we use, use AWS. Um, our hosting provider... Okay. WP Engine, everything's on AWS, but we don't actually interact with it at all. Right on, right on. So, you know, you have
1: these managed services or or software as a service services that you're taking advantage of. It would be interesting to know what they're using. And my guess is a lot of them probably still haven't made the shift to containerization and maybe using things like, um, you know, Beanstalk or, you know, straight EC2
0: instances that they manage themselves. I'm not even really sure, but I know that they, they're pretty transparent about it. So I'm just quickly seeing if there's anything in here that would might (laughs) tell us that, but that's
1: usually, yeah. I mean, they might, they may be transparent and they say, they may say, you know, these are the regions that we use, or these are the, um, you know, this is where the stuff is. And this is some of the stuff that we do to make sure that things are redundant and things don't fall over, but they're, they'd be unlikely to, I would guess that they probably wouldn't get that much into the, you know, here's how the sausage is made.
2: Right.
0: Um, yeah, and and they're not actually saying anything on their on their website anymore. Um, we have used S3 for storage uh, directly, um, but that's rare because we can just fire up a CDN um, with with uh, WP Engine. I'm not sure where that is. I think it's like NetDNA or something like that. So yeah, I mean, what we I played around with AWS um, in the past when I had to, um, but um, only S3 I think creating buckets and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and and that is kind of telling. Um, it it does suggest that as much as AWS may want to try to move, I don't know which direction that it, this is on the market, but move towards more usable services that that aren't totally engineering. Um, they're not succeeding, so they really re- rely on um, the likes of of. Companies like WP Engine or Heroku, for example, I'm sure Heroku is probably actually using AWS under the scene um, to create services that that non um, super you know developer types or or software engineers can make use of. But there are definitely you know in the list of services they have, there are definitely some that are targeted towards companies like yours, and you're just not you're not even finding out about them. Interesting. Okay, so. The next one I have on the list here is RDS, and it's it's almost even funny to talk about it because we've been using it for years and years and years, and and you know it's like is is there even an alternative? RDS is just so fundamental, but maybe we could talk about it a little bit. Do you have anything you'd like to mention about what we like about RDS, Chris? Yeah,
2: I mean we could probably just define what it is first. So RDS stands sure. for relation, relational database service, and so what it is it's it is a managed service. Providing relational databases in in various flavors. So things like Postgres, MySQL. um, There's an Amazon, um, uh, its own data, its own relational database called Aurora. Um, They also offer uh, Microsoft SQL Server as well as as a host of MariaDB. um, And I believe uh, Oracle as well. Um so oh, yeah. a, bunch, a bunch of different flavors of relational databases but but the the really great thing it, it is it is managed so um you don't have to manage the servers yourselves um uh, amazon is doing that for you um it provides um very uh great support and, and super easy to do things like backups and restores um it will um it supports uh, availability and fault tolerance features like multi availability zone, um, configuration just with a, with a a mouse click. So, yeah. So if you have like, you have any kind of need for a relational database, you have to look, um, like definitely have to look at RDS and there's gotta be a a super good reason why you wouldn't use it. Um, it, you just get, there's so many benefits to it. Um, it's kind of just, it's almost like it's the responsible thing to do. Um, as opposed to running this stuff yourself. So you could, you could certainly do that. You could spin up any, you know, EC2s and install Postgres on them and, and, and run it yourself, and it would be cheaper. But um, you're kind of assuming so much risk and responsibility and liability by doing so, and it's just a hassle. So why would you do that? So um, RDS is definitely one of those, those core things that we, we use with, with basically every single app we write.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking back to 2001, setting up some databases for some major clients like like Lowe's and Sears and, and doing things like, gosh, I remember doing things like vacuum was the command we used to do on databases and re-indexing.
2: I don't think you have to ever think about that stuff anymore with RDS. Is that right? You still absolutely have to deal with like the Application level stuff. So so yeah, you you will define your indexes and and you'll you'll tweak and tune them and look at them from a performance standpoint. But you don't have to worry so much about like you don't definitely not to worry about the hardware.
1: Quite what I meant. So yeah, absolutely, like setting up your indexes and making sure your queries are performing and all that. But but there used to be some just maintenance commands that you had to run on databases. And and one of them was vacuum and another one was re-index. And what re-index did was just go through the database and make sure that all your indexes are up to date. And what Vacuum did was you know, kind of the same thing as defragging a hard drive, um, kind of reconsolidating all your data and moving it into nice places and, and getting rid of gaps in your database uh, from deletions and things like that. Um, so I don't know if those have just been replaced by better database engines or if those have been replaced by you know, managed services like RDS?
2: I think it's definitely the former. I think it's okay. just, just like we don't, we don't really have to defrag our, our drives anymore. Um, mm-hmm. and, just the engines yeah. themselves are better. Yeah. And not only that, there's there's frequent updates and, and patches. You know, these databases are being patched. So that is something that you do get with, with RDS, right? You don't have to install the patches yourself. You can define those maintenance windows and, and RDS will do that for you. Um, so that kind of maintenance is, is definitely, um, provided for you, but yeah, I don't, yeah, I think it's definitely, um, there was a lot more pain, um, 15 years ago with just keeping things up and running for sure, doing those things. Um, and there's less of that to do now, although it's been replaced by other things that we have to do. (laughs) Right, right.
1: Cool. So moving on, the next one we have on the list is API gateway. What is that?
2: Yeah, so um this is essentially uh, a front door um to uh that it's it's a, it's a front door service for API calls. Um and you get um some kind of like common core functionality from that right out of the gate. Things like if you want to do like um throttling and quotas and kind of like just capturing just raw metric, you know, just understanding the raw metrics, um, of, you know, how many times your, your APIs are called. It gives you the flexibility of how you want to route those, um, those API calls. Uh, so like if you want to, um, if you're completely, I think a great example is, and we can, well, I think we're going to get more into this later is, um, you know, serverless is is definitely a a pretty um, pretty hot topic nowadays, um, and Lambda is one of those serverless technologies with with AWS. So there's a um, it's very much possible for you to write your application completely serverless. Um, you can write it as a um, a suite of Lambda functions, um, but then the problem becomes like, well, how do you invoke those Lambda functions from the outside world? What if I have like a mobile application? And I need to invoke these things. Like, how does it? How is it able to discover it and talk to it? And that's where something like API gateway comes in. So it's that front door. It's internet facing. It's got a. It's got a DNS name, and your 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 mobile app can go and make its call to it. Um, You define your 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 application um, uh, endpoints in API gateway. And so when these requests comes in, it sees them, and then it, you tell it how it wants to be routed. So you can say, hey, when someone calls the you know, get, um, get messages endpoint, um, it knows to route it to this particular Lambda function um, and invokes it, and then it returns back the results. Um, so it's, it's definitely a key core piece of the, the serverless um, puzzle of, of building out an application that way.
1: So and I don't know how we're using it. Is that how we're using it where we have serverless lambda functions and we're fronting them with API gateway or are we um sending API gateway requests to
2: ECS? So total um truth in lending <laughs> disclosure <laughs> here. Um we we are not um big users of API gateway. We actually have just started to use it um okay. because we've just started to have other applications that we interact with that are being built with some of the serverless technologies like Lambda. Um, And so so we're now, you know, we're basically becoming, we're we're consumers of API gateway. You know, the alternative to API gateway is, you know, have elastic load balancers fronting your applications and you, you assign the DNS names to your elastic load balancers and those are the front door into it. And then whatever kind of, um, value-added services you need on the actual um, api itself you would roll your own we have not had uh, a huge use case scenario for doing things like like throttling uh, we usually in, in, implement our own um, user identity um, uh, stores profile stores and whatnot so um, using api gateway in that way um, hasn't been hasn't been uh, really on our on our radar but as we go forward and we and we look at some of um, some of these newer newer technologies and kind of where it makes sense, you know we may we're definitely going to be looking at using API Gateway more for if we do start doing more serverless, more lambda stuff. So a takeaway for me
1: on what you're saying is that when we use technologies like uh, node Express framework or when we use Ruby on Rails, um, those technologies come with a routing layer already. And you can just send any, you know, your, like as long as you can get to that routing layer, the the parameters or things that, you know, after the slashes in the URL, the routing layer takes care of that uh, and then gets it to the right function within the node application or the uh, Ruby application. Um, but when it comes to API Gateway, that's assuming that you don't have a software routing layer and that you're wanting to go directly to a function that's exposed via something like Lambda,
2: right? yeah that's a that's a very wonderful way of thinking about it um because that really is like the the canonical use case here is that um if you've spread up your app across a collection of functions that are not part of the same application then yeah how do you how do you route to them so api gateway becomes your your routing layer so it's looking at the path coming in um and it sends it off to the appropriate function um versus if you are you know Rails, Sinatra, Express, um, you're doing all that stuff in the app itself. So all the requests are coming into that one application, and then the application is then looking at the request and saying, okay, what function do I route it to? And that function lives with, with inside that application, not as a separate service. Right on.
1: So I, I don't know. We'll see if we ended up doing more serverless stuff. And that that actually was the the next talk. The next part of this talk is just, what do we like about Lambda? What do we dislike about Lambda? You've already defined Lambda as this thing that's um, lets to write a function that lives in the cloud, and the function can just be called from from anywhere, um, and then it does its job and returns its answer. If it was a silver bullet, I think we would have jumped right on it and, and be using it for everything. But I think that it comes with a few drawbacks that that cause us to still use applications um and frameworks instead of doing serverless everything. So maybe talk about some some of our experience and some of our hesitation around jumping on the serverless bandwagon.
2: Yeah. So I definitely have mixed feelings on on Lambda and and mostly from the standpoint of it it changes you to really it causes you to to change the way that you write your software. Um so, you now you're you're basically breaking it up into these chunks um, that are kind of standalone, and that just and and they're they're deployed individually. So, like you're you're breaking up your cohesive application into a series of of functions essentially, and each one of those are kind of like atomic units. And so, to me, that just just it feels weird and kind of like kind of takes away some of the, the joy of the craftsmanship of kind of putting together um, a cohesive application. So that said um, definitely there are great uses of Lambda and, and mostly like for me, like the the areas where for me, it's like a no brainer to use are when I have events that I want to uh, respond to and, and take some kind of action or I need I, I can use them as like middleware um, to glue together these events from from one system to another one, um, and that's where I'm super excited about Lambda. So it's it's really like it, I can't imagine right now saying like I'm gonna go and architect a complete full up application using nothing but Lambda. Like that's I just don't see that happening. And I think
1: one of the reasons that that doesn't, that, that doesn't feel natural is in part because I don't think Lambda gives you lots of organizational capabilities. So, you know, an application, a lot of times it has a purpose and there may be many functions that it, that it can perform, but those functions are probably related to one another. And the overall application has a purpose in life that it's trying to accomplish. Um, and, and if you have multiple applications, each of those might have different purposes. And I don't know that there's a way to show that in Lambda. Like, here's my different applications with their different purposes, and I can keep them separate, and I can look at them individually. I don't think that Lambda supports that kind of breakdown of that, that sort of um, ontology of of software. I think it's just a list of applications, or sorry, function.
2: Yeah, the, the tools are getting better. Um, and mm-hmm. so there are frameworks now that kind of um, help manage the stuff and to make it so that it's more seamless. Um, there are, uh, things, even things like cloud formation can help you in this as well to kind of like, um, hide some of the fact that all this has to be broken up into individual things. Um, at the end of the day, Lambda function is just code and it actually can, the code can be as big as you want, right? You could sure. eight megabytes of code. So you could actually like whatever, you, you know, common libraries you need in order to, to do what it is that the Lambda function is to do that can be included with it. There's duplication there, but, you know, kind of like, okay, so, um, you know, like let, let the tools and the frameworks handle that for you when it, when it's doing the the deploys and whatnot. Um, so there, there, there are ways, you know, the tools are, are making it easier, but yeah, that, that fundamental I think that fundamental issue, um, definitely still applies. Um, so, but I, again, I think there's, there's definitely really good use cases for it, um, Things like, let me, I'll give a couple examples. Um, So one would be DynamoDB is one of the NoSQL databases that Amazon offers. Um, It's kind of a um, competitor, or um, very similar to something like MongoDB or or, um, CouchDB. Um, It has a, a... uh, feature in it called uh, DynamoDB streams. And streams are basically just these event streams of whenever mutable operations happen on that database, right? So and they, they stick around for about 24 hours, um, and then they fall off. But So imagine like in your application, you want to know whenever one of your database objects is updated, you want to basically, let, let's just say you want to send an email or something like that. Um, you know, so how would you do that? So you know, normally you might say, "Okay, I'm going to update my, I'm going to update my application. I'm actually write code in my application so that in the in the the code that handles these update requests, in addition to making the update on the database, it also then does something else to to send out this this notification that it, that the update happened." Um, but in this Amazon um, ecosystem, what you can do is you can you can set up that stream, which is basically just a one click on on the Amazon console, and then you can then have a a Lambda function subscribe to that stream, and so whenever there's an event on that stream, your Lambda function gets called. Um, and now that Lambda function, so you can so you can you can basically have that logic of, hey, I want to do something when this event happens, just v- with a very simple function. Handler that is implemented as a as a as a, as a lambda, um, and now you've decoupled that from the rest of the application. You don't have to redeploy your application to get that functionality. You can so you can keep that um, very loose coupling um, and have the flexibility to to do whatever it is that you want. And so when if that changes, where you want to now um, do two types of notifications. It's very easy to do. You just update your, your Lambda function. So you can have a handful of these Lambda functions in conjunction with your main application um, and together have a very powerful, flexible system that it makes it really easy to add on this. Some pretty sophisticated features.
1: Yeah, that, that is a good use case. An- another one that comes to mind is... Um sort of cron-type things that happen maybe infrequently. Uh, one that we did recently was reading some Medicare data from the Medicare government website once a month. Um, and we could have, of course, made a Docker container and put a task into EC2, or sorry, ECS, uh, that that could have been triggered from um, CloudWatch, you know, triggers that happen once a month. But it's just way less setup and way less work to create a Lambda function to do that. Um, and the the result is essentially the same. Uh, something that gets called, a function that gets called qu- and runs quickly and then it's done. Um, one of the one just to share a quick story, one of the one of the things that can be a drawback, I think, on lambda is that it's a little bit difficult to monitor. Um, you can you can't really see, especially if you have a lot of of traffic uh, going into your lambda functions and they're and they're sort of making an application that's ongoing and handling you know, many, many requests per second all the time. It, it may be difficult to really get a lot of insight into what's happening. And and we know that uh, under the covers, Lambda is using containerization and it's spinning up containers and discarding old containers and, and trying to shape its capability to the traffic that it expects to see and that it is seeing. Um, and at one point I was, I was at a conference and um, a person that was... Um, Giving a talk was talking about how they've done some reverse engineering to find out what Lambda is doing and what, how often it's uh, getting rid of old stale containers and spinning up new ones. And, you know, there's some, when you're running a, a high load application in Lambda, there's some evidence showing that occasionally there, there would be slower requests while new containers are starting up and becoming available. And they, they had just done a lot of graphing and mapping to figure out what really is going on under the covers and at that conference in the audience was the general manager of lambda from aws himself and it was interesting just to see him kind of nodding along and and at the same time knowing that some of the things that were being shared were reverse engineering of the secret sauce of lambda that he probably is not really allowed to talk about publicly so it's just a really fun interaction to see um but at the end of the day, the, my takeaway was uh, you know, to be a little bit careful in terms of doing large applications at scale inside of Lambda because um, your control is not, you know, you don't have 100% control over how things happen and your ability to monitor is a little limited.
2: Yeah, indeed. and definitely in the past, um, that spin-up time uh, was definitely a huge factor because the spin-up time used to be a lot lengthier. So it would mm-hmm. be like if you're, if you're Lambda hadn't been invoked um, for a certain amount of time, then basically that would be deprovisioned. And then the next time a call was made to it, there was some startup initialization time. So it could be, you know, a lengthy, you know, 10, 15 second delay before it actually responds to that call. And then after that, it's like the normal quick response time. So you end up doing things like, oh, I'm going to set up, you know, some other like cron job or Lambda, some scheduled task that goes and just hits my service, my API every, you know, every minute or every few minutes type thing to keep it warm. Yep.
1: Yep. Well, cool. I think, you know, there's a, so much to talk about in serverless and, and clearly we were interested and excited to talk about it more, but we were wanting to keep this conversation at a fairly high level across a lot of different AWS services. Um, mm-hmm. I think we have time to touch on just the last few and, and maybe we can touch on them. Oh, there's, there's actually four more that we <laughs> wanted to talk about. So it's going to be difficult to to get to all four, but maybe we could do, um, we could leave out S3 and instead just talk about SNS, SQS and SES just, just briefly what those are and, and why we
2: like them, why we use them. Right. Yeah. These are some of the core messaging services that, AWS provides. So SNS, that stands for um, simple notification service. Um, and what that's for is that's for basically um, you can, you can set up these uh, they're called topics, um, which is kind of like you can think of, think of it as just a channel. Um, and then you can have basically pub sub to that channel. So you can publish a message to that channel. You can um, have, Uh, zero to N subscribers to that topic that are then notified when a message is posted onto that. And then they can read that message and then do whatever it is. So, so it's, 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 it's this, um, uh, multi reader, um, events channel, if you will type thing. And you can, you can use this for a, a variety of use cases. You can use it for things like, um, sending push notifications to mobile devices, um, whether you're using, um, apple's apns or you're using um google's uh i forget gcm i believe is what it's called for push notifications to android devices um you can uh set up these these messages to to go to various different places whether it be like um cues or um you can chain them together to, to say trigger an email or something like that so pretty pretty That's flexible cool yeah and that's been the most
1: interesting thing to me about s n s is that really when we started with it, we thought of it as oh it's that's what we use for push notifications but now it really seems more like a full on pub sub um publish subscribe uh
2: bus and and no it, it what it is it's it's um one of the really great use cases of it is just this concept of fan out um so um this might be a good segue into SQS. So SQS is for stands for simple queuing service, simple queue service. Um, and so what's, so what that is is basically it's just a message queue, right? You can, you, you push a message onto a queue um, and then you can have readers that are just pulling messages off of it. Um, and when a message is pulled off, then it's only that whatever pulled it off is the only one that can see it. Right. So it's not this one to many publishing. It's just, it's basically just one to one. Whoever gets the message does it. So you can think that think of it as like just units of work, um, as opposed to kind of like notifying um, uh, a, a list of, of subscribers. So um, like a really great example of how these two things interact is recently we were using SQS to trigger um, one of these to. Uh, it was um we would we would send in a, a message to an to an SQS queue when a certain event happened because we wanted to do a specific we wanted to take a specific action when that event happened, right? So we we would we would basically publish this message to the queue. We'd have the one the one subscriber to the queue reading from it, it would pick up these messages and say, Okay, I'm gonna go do my background task on it. And and it worked worked very well, did exactly what it needed to do. Um, but then we had um, the situation where it's like, oh, we have this other piece of software that it also wants to know when that event happens, because it wants to do some other task that's related to when that that event happens. So what do we do there? Um, so we could definitely go ahead and create another queue and, and inside our code that handles the event, we could basically send two messages, one to the first queue and, and another one to the other queue. Um, but that that feels you know, duplicitous and, and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's error, but what happens if the published to the first queue is successful, but the one to the second queue fails, you know, what do you, what do you, what state are you in? So, um, that's when we said like, let's, let's go ahead this is a great use case for SNS. So instead of sending two SQS messages, let's just send one SNS message that, Hey, this event just happened and here's some metadata about it. Um, then what we do is we can now have multiple subscribers to that SNS topic. Um, and the subscribers can be things like an SQSQ. So, um, so now it, so this concept is called fan out. So you basically can fan out your event to multiple subscribers using something like SNS. Um, and so it's, it, it's, uh, it's a very powerful tool. Um, to use. And um, it doesn't have to be just fanning out to SQS, right? You can fan out to a, to a Lambda function as well. So actually in our particular case, we're, we're fanning out to an SQS queue as well as a Lambda function.
1: And just to add to, you know, those are great reasons to use a message queue or use a, a publish subscribe system in general. That's what they're for. There's a lot of other ones out there, some open source ones, some commercial ones. And, you know, I think the reason that we like to use the the SNS and SQS is because we're already using AWS for other things. We know from experience that setting up and keeping running those open source ones requires work and configuration and thought and troubleshooting. And we'd like to spend our brain cycles thinking about, you know, customer needs and user needs rather than whether or not our Queuing system is running on some EC2 instance out there. Um, so going with what Amazon has provided is absolutely adequate, if not world class, and uh, keeps us focused on what what our users need. Absolutely, yeah. And also, I think the word you were looking for was duplicative rather than duplicitous. But I do like the idea of some duplicitous coding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so the last one before we wrap up today is SES. What is that and what do we use it for? What
2: do we like it? Right, yeah. So SES uh, stands for Simple Email Service. Um, and so this is literally a SMTP server um, so that you can send email messages to wherever you need to, to send them to. So um, again, another messaging, um, core messaging service that, you can, that your apps can use we use it to, you know, again trigger emails when certain events happen, um, or we want to send information to to users of the system or whatnot. And you can again chain these things together, so you can have SNS fan out, um, and one of those things is a you know you can trigger emails through SES when those SNS messages happen. Right, and I think that SES,
1: honestly, is a little more difficult to set up and a little harder to work with than one of its competitors, which is SendGrid. And we used to use SendGrid as, as our de facto email sending service. And it has more features, too. It it lets you, you know, see nice reports of what emails are bouncing and, um, and you know, manage those those lists very easily within, within the system. And SES is a little bit more just Here's a system, you know, use it at your peril, kind of thing. Um, they and it also requires a bit more setup. They they make you uh, essentially apply with Amazon in order to be able to send messages beyond an initial small whitelist of users, which can be a, a bit of a pain. Um, but the one thing that it does have is just you know nice easy integration with other Amazon services, and so I think that's. That's one of these cases where SES may not be the best solution, may not be the most world-class one, but we kind of got sucked in to using it just through Amazon's sort of total platform capability and tie in with everything else. Just that
2: lock-in that Amazon tends to do to you. It's kind of, in a way, it's a network effect, right? It's like, even though it may not be as full featured just the the integration capabilities, um, that kind of definitely tips the tide um, into yeah. its favor. How often does that happen where you, you move away from a better
0: product because of the integration that it has?
1: I mean, it happened there. It may have happened one or two other times. I'm thinking of one of the things I'm thinking about is, well, like, like elastic beanstalk, I think is another great example. We talked about that earlier, earlier today. And Heroku uh, is a cleaner, more polished product and it's, it's more pleasant to use, um, but it, you know, it left a little bit to be desired in terms of monitoring and, and troubleshooting that, that the not as good product, Elastic Beanstalk, tipped us into it because we want those were so important um, that we were willing to put up with a worse user
2: experience. Yeah. And it's actually the reverse is probably more true. Like there's definitely cases where kind of like the AWS version of something is just not good enough so we 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 use something else a good example for us is is logging um so amazon has has cloudwatch logs um their their logs are rotated you can they're easy to set up they're integrated but they're really not i mean they're they're kind of difficult to work with um they're not too developer friendly they're not easily searchable um and so we use an external service for our, for our logs. Um, so we, we use Sumo logic, um, and you know, it's a, it's, that's all they do, right. They, they focus on just logs and it's great. Um, and it's, we can do, we have all every, every kind of feature that we need and it, it really helps us get our job done. And so, you know, that's a great example of, you know, you don't have to drink all the Kool-Aid. Um, you know, you really have to be, be careful and know like what the trade-offs are and, and use the right tool for the job. But there are a lot of great tools that Amazon has. And a lot of times it may be not as full featured as something else, but it still covers your, your core use cases. And so it doesn't limit you. I think that's kind of like the big things, like how much does it limit you? And if it is, and you need to be looking to, to some other tool, but if it's just 10% easy, you know, 10% better, like, is that enough to make you, Lose the that power of integration, that network effect of staying within the AWS ecosystem.
0: And so, in yeah. this case, SES. Um, so, uh, SendGrid isn't an order of magnitude better, and so therefore, SES is is the right solution for that. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yep, yep. So, so, so next week um,
1: we have a couple more core AWS things that I want to still talk about S3, and I want to talk more about CloudWatch and then uh, talk about several things that we're evaluating and excited about that we haven't used much. Some we've used a little bit um, that are, that we're rolling into to um, just our, our, main tool belt of a- AWS options. So I'm looking forward to that conversation and thank you, Rich and Chris
0: for such a fun conversation today. Yeah. Thanks guys. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode along with show notes and other valuable resources is available at mobicast.fm forward slash If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you. And we'll see you again next week.